You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Thanks for joining our Brookings Tech Tank podcast. I'm Daryl West, Vice President of Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution and co-author with Brookings President John Allen of a book about AI entitled Turning Point, Policymaking in the Era of Artificial Intelligence. Fairness is a bedrock principle in the American legal justice system. It is the standard to which we aspire and the basis of our rule of law. We want equity and justice for all, regardless of their background. Yet our legal system falls far short of that standard. There are fundamental inequities among our most vulnerable people and processes and outcomes that systematically disadvantage people based on race and gender. To discuss these important questions, we are pleased to be joined by a distinguished expert. Laura Coates is a senior legal analyst at CNN. She also hosts her own show on Sirius XM and has served as an adjunct professor at the George Washington University Law School. And she now has a new book out from Simon & Schuster entitled Just Pursuit, A Black Prosecutor's Fight for Fairness. So Laura, welcome to our Brookings Tech Tank podcast. Thank you. I'm so happy to be with you today. Thank you for having me. Well, before we get to your book, I want to learn a little bit more about your background. You are a former federal prosecutor who served as assistant U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia and as a trial attorney in the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice. How did your experience as a federal prosecutor affect your view of the American legal system? Well, you know, how much time do you have, Daryl? We've got a lot of <laughs> in terms of how much it affected and impacted. I think I really talk about it from the perspective of what you know versus what you really understand. And conceptually, intellectually, I knew about topics like disproportionate impact. I knew what disparate impact meant. I knew about mass incarceration and the prison pipeline. And I knew, obviously, about the impact of race in our criminal justice system. But until I was actually inside of a criminal courtroom, as a federal prosecutor, I don't think I truly could ever have understood what it really meant. And I equate it very much to almost being on a train platform where you know the power of a locomotive, you know what happens when those pistons start to go, when you know about the speed at which it can actually travel. But then when you're actually on a platform and one whizzes by you and it takes your breath away and you actually feel the reverberations of that power, you see it for yourself and you understand the ferocity and the force, that's when you begin to understand. And I think as much as I was informed about the legal system and a presumed generalist in private practice, let alone even in the voting rights section of the Civil Rights Division, until I actually saw a criminal courtroom from the perspective of a prosecutor able to wield power and exercise discretion, I don't think one can truly understand the impact of race and bias on our system. Yeah, it must have been very disheartening to see some of the things that you ended up talking about in the book. And in your book, Just Pursuit, you write that, quote, when I first became a prosecutor, I had thought each case could represent a dot on the arc that Dr. King hoped would bend towards justice. Now I wondered if I was bending the arc of justice or breaking it. And I was afraid the justice system might just break me, end quote. Why isn't our legal system bending towards justice? 
Well, our legal system, as you actually appropriately describe it, it's a legal system that's aspiring to be a justice system. And I think that's lost on a great many people. You know, we are, as you've heard that familiar phrase time and time again, we are a nation of laws. But we're also the great American experiment when it comes to democracy, as we see time and time again. But we're also somebody who's aspiring as a nation to really have justice and fairness as much a part of the legal system as the laws that are codified within it. And when you think about how as Americans, we think about justice, oftentimes with a very binary perspective. We think about it from a perspective of a conviction or an acquittal, as if justice can come down to a single trial or a verdict that's actually rendered. But in reality, there's so much nuance in our justice system and in our legal system in particular. And we can't think about it as the idea of the ends justifying the means, because the end would be the verdict. And if we think to ourselves that the means are sort of all as fair in love and law and war, then we are going to inadvertently perhaps create injustices. And I begin the book talking about that very notion, how at times the pursuit of justice creates injustice. And that might seem very counterintuitive. However, if you think about justice in just that binary fashion, you will have collateral damage you will start to believe that the ends justifies the means, and you will have an unbelievable impact and one that is deleterious on those who are not only the victims, but those who sometimes are the defendants, those who touch every aspect of this ecosystem. Yeah, one of the things I loved about your book is in part it is an analysis of our justicism, but it's also a personal account of your own experiences. And some of those stories are very powerful. And in the quote that I read, you close that quote by saying, I was afraid the justice system might just break me. And you mentioned this notion of injustice. How did the system start to break you? Well, you know, I think people did not expect this type of book from me or maybe a lawyer in general. I think when people think, oh, a lawyer's written a book, their first instinct is, okay, well, I didn't go to law school, therefore I don't want to read it. Or this is going to be a snooze fest. Or you know what? This is going to be about a Supreme Court case and we're going to give the context and the history and work methodically through this particular case. I was quite intentional about not wanting to do that. Much as I love those books as a legal nerd that I am, I wanted people to really reflect personally. And so I wanted to be as personal as I could. And it felt very vulnerable at times to be as personal. Sometimes I questioned, do I really want to go there? Do I really want people, not just with CNN and the work I do to know what the law is and how to interpret the law, but how I feel about it and what the law feels like and what justice feels like and the pursuit of justice. And it's very, at times, disorienting. And I wanted people to understand from that personal perspective, which is why every chapter stands alone episodically. And it really talks about the battles of allegiance as you talk about the notion of how it could break me. You know, I've never had the luxury of entering any room, whether it be a classroom, a courtroom, a boardroom, a, you know, a studio, wherever it might be, and shedding facets of my identity behind me. I I never wanted that luxury. I wanted to bring my entire self in. But when you do and come in as woman with a black woman, a wife, a mother, lived experience as a human being in the United States of America, a student of history, a civil rights advocate, all of those notions, 
you often are confronted and struggle with your personal battles of allegiance from where your moral compass points to one direction and the directives of your office pointing to quite another. And those were, that was a tension I really explored in this book and introspectively throughout my time there about what it felt like between what was right and what was required, what was lawful and what was fair and what was the pursuit versus the injustices that it created. And I think for so many, those tensions in their own world with their own respective careers, for me, the courtroom and the justice department was really that moment of confronting and often battling those allegiances. And for some in the civil rights division, it was a foregone conclusion that I was a champion of those who had had their rights infringed and those who were marginalized and those who were most vulnerable to the legacy of America. But when I went to become a criminal prosecutor, that allegiance was questioned. I was challenged in the sense of whose side was I on? And we really have to, Daryl, disrupt this fallacy that you can either be a proponent of civil rights or a prosecutor. Now, that is a great point. And I think this is a real strength of your uh, book. I mean, as you point out, this is not a dry academic book. It's uh, very personal. You draw on your personal experiences. You show the moral tension, the personal conflicts, and you cite a number of problems in our legal system. But personally, I found one of the most chilling examples that you used is when one of your white male colleagues taught you how to interrogate a black defendant. Can you tell us about that episode and then what it reveals about our system? Well, this colleague certainly tried to teach me something. What This is an example of one day I was in my office and, you know, the sheer volume of cases that you have as a prosecutor, you know, it's not unheard of for you to be juggling dozens of matters in a moment's notice or have multiple trials even in a week. And you often inherit cases from your colleagues because the government is, is so fungible. So you're passing cases around. One is one person's going to a different section, specializing someplace else, maybe leaving the office, whatever it might be. And so in one moment, I was grappling with having a new caseload that I had inherited when a white male colleague came to my door to see if I wanted to see something funny, hence the name of the chapter. And in a moment of longing for escapism, longing for levity and and otherwise extraordinarily trying and and taxing caseload, I jumped at the chance believing that there would be some sort of a punchline, maybe a meme, maybe a funny joke in the hallway. Instead, I found myself moments later not having asked any questions about what might be the funny thing he wanted me to see, I ended up in the basement of our own prosecutor's office, sitting across from a young black man who was chained to a desk, who my white male colleague was hoping he could convert to an informant. His own attorney was sitting there, albeit on the phone, and watching this juxtaposition from this young man's expression of humanity, even offering me a seat to my colleague's very disgusting, frankly, approach where he tried to emulate and impersonate, I guess, what his view of the wire may have looked like or some good cop, bad cop scenario, even questioning why I would introduce myself to them, meaning this particular defendant, and really setting up this very clear and stark example of how he believed it wasn't us versus them. It was a take no prisoners. It was a do whatever you can to get the result, even if by trying to convert this person into an informant, it presented a actual risk to this person's life. And I can tell you in those moments watching it, I certainly was 
horrified by it. I certainly spoke my mind about it. But even in my intention to distinguish myself from that moment and from my colleague, I was complicit by my very presence. And as though, although I perceived myself differently for the young man who was chained watching this show unfold before him, afraid for what it might mean for himself, not knowing the information that was sought, not wanting to be converted to an informant because he had no basis to be one. I very well was not in the position to say, well, I'm different. I'm different here because I was as fungible in his mind as any other member of the government and the prosecution's team. And it really was a stunning revelation to me of how I would need to ensure that my approach to being a prosecutor, that my approach to being a proponent of civil rights, that my approach required that when I stood up and said, Laura Coates, on behalf of the people of the United States, that would necessarily mean the defendant. That had to mean the person who was accused of a crime. If I believed in due process, if I believed in the presumption of innocence, if I believed in the process by which justice could unfold, then that too was a person I represented. So I'm not sure what is most shocking about this story, the fact that the suspect was chained to the desk, or you also note that his attorney was on a phone not paying attention to the questioning and obviously putting his client at a risk in that situation. And it just kind of raises this issue of the quality of legal representation, uh, the lack of equity in a representation. So how big of an issue is uh, this? Uh, what did you see during the course of your career? Well, it also shows you the idea of what it must be like for somebody to believe they have a champion and an advocate and that person is complicit. That person's not advocating and, and maybe even paternalistically says, oh, this is what's best for you in the long run. And so and because, you know, prosecutors and defense attorneys, we are seeing the volume, the breadth, the scope of what happens in our legal system. You know, the idea of talking about informants or plea bargains and and convictions and trial schedules. This are, these are things perhaps as routine in corporate America as looking at a spreadsheet. But for those who are finding themselves on the other side of United States' versus or are victimized by a crime and are thrust into the system as a witness or obviously a non-eager and, and reluctant participant by no fault of their own, imagine how confusing and startling and scary and frustrating it is. And to know that you don't necessarily know who your champion may be, if at all you have one, if you're able to afford a counsel of your own. And it really does speak to you. And there are many extraordinary defense counsel across the United States. There were certainly many in Washington, D.C., and many extraordinary prosecutors who were grappling with the same sort of moral conundrums I was. But when we're talking about the presumption of innocence, just think about all that goes into it and how, one, we have to pay for that. I mean, yes, we technically have one, but that's only if you can make bail. Because then the presumption of innocence actually becomes increasingly more difficult to be presumed when you don't have access to counsel that has the time, let alone the appetite, to be as much of a champion as you need. When you don't have access to being gainfully employed and being able to participate in the defense, when you don't have the ability to truly evaluate a prosecutor's plea offer from somebody who's outside awaiting a trial as opposed to somebody within wondering how long can their mental health be compromised or sustained in this way 
to deal with the, the length of time they're there until trial. And you find yourself making calls and judgment calls like, well, this prosecutor is offering a three-year deal. And maybe I'll be able to get out in a year and a half if the judge puts some time over my head. But if I don't take this plea, then I'm facing 10 to 20 years. And I'm looking at my children who are about that age, or I'm looking at my own life and I'm wondering, will I be able to overcome the presumption of guilt that often accompanies the way jurors look at these cases? And these are, these are moments to think about the justice system of what we really mean by due process and whether that presumption truly means something. And yet another instance where, you know, who America says we are or who our justice system says we are on paper doesn't match who we are in practice. So another issue that you raise in your Just Pursuit book is the question of mistaken identity. And this apparently is fairly common and obviously leads to bad outcomes for uh, those affected. Mm -hmm. How can this happen and how often does this come up? Well, one chapter in the book, I, I talk about this very notion of just how easy it would be for a mistaken identity case to persist. And, you know, oftentimes on the headlines, as you well know, when people are hearing about mistaken identity cases or oftentimes hearing about it, from the perspective of somebody who has now been exonerated or now released after serving a long time in prison. And they're sort of sent on their unmerry way with a paper bag and bus fare and hoping that somebody that they knew when they were on the outside is still going to be there to meet them and provide a community and hopefully help them figure out a way to have the felony conviction that should have been not there in the first place overturned or exonerated, expunged in a way that allows them to be gainfully employed, assuming they have any skill set that is in time and keeping with where they are right now in a society that constantly changes. We normally think about it from that end and we all lament and say, my God, how does this happen and what an injustice. But I write from the chapter in this book about how easily it can actually happen. And there was an instance where a young black male defendant with his black male defense counsel were adamant in a case that I was simply handling as a status hearing inside of a courtroom. It was not my own. It was a, another colleague of mine who had put it on the desk for me to cover in the class in the courtroom, which often happens. And trying to get up to speed, watching this man profess his innocence. You could imagine that somebody claiming innocence is really something that's so common that there is a temptation to essentially turn a, a, a deaf ear towards it and say, okay, well, that's what everyone is going to say, obviously. But in this moment, watching this man profess his innocence, that he had not savagely assaulted a woman, that he had allegedly fathered a child with, that he didn't know who this woman was. He'd never met this woman. You've got the wrong guy. I don't have any children. And, and trying to plead his case and his defense counsel essentially, after making what he thought was a valiant effort, saying, well, we tried. Watching the white female judge berate this man, make, try to make a mockery of his attempts to profess his innocence, and then looking to me, hoping that I would try to get in her good graces by demonstrating some sort of camaraderie in the moment and, and assuming that he was like anyone else, just not wanting to be accountable. There was a blink moment, Daryl, the blink moment that says, God, you know what? Police officers, they do get things wrong, as we all know. What would it take for me to 
follow up and see if the warrant squad really does have the right person. What would it take? This person's already here. It's easy to put the person in custody. It's not as if, you know, it would take the extra mile just to maybe try and see. And in that chapter, I write about how it didn't require the extra mile. It required the extra inch and confirming that indeed it was the wrong person. As marshals were in the courtroom, possibly able to handcuff him immediately. And then what would he have done? He would have had the same experience that so many people do of waiting, of waging, and how will I prove it? How can I do this victim security laws that are in place to protect the identity of some foreclosed his opportunity to meaningfully even identify this person to show that it wasn't him. And I write about how easily this can happen. If you want to know how recently this can happen, just a few days ago, there was a man, a, a black man in New Mexico who was held for six days because the officers got the wrong person. It was, I believe it was the same name, but it was a white man twice his age who they actually were seeking as opposed to himself. And just imagine these blink moments. And that's why it's imperative for us to really bring our entire selves. And that includes a healthy level of skepticism with respect to how much of a benefit of the doubt we extend to fallible human beings who also are police officers. That is a great lesson. It's, uh, it's certainly important to deal with those types of issues. So we live in an era of digital technology, and I'm curious how technology has changed our justice system, and what are the risks that people face just from the fact that we're living so much of our lives online, we have phones, we have digital gadgets, there are video cameras uh, everywhere. What kind of problems is this creating for our legal justice system? Well, that's a great question. On the one hand, it aids in the prosecution of people if everyone has the ability to record something, right? You have the idea of the Derek Chauvin trial most recently for the killing of George Floyd, but for a teenager with the cell phone camera pointed to the horror that so many of us watched, we would not have had, I think, the same outcome in that particular trial. We would have had the idea of the officer's testimony and statements, if we ever heard about this case, compared to somebody who was victimized by that officer who could not speak for himself because he was now dead. We would have this sort of notion of how often we give greater weight to the statements of a police officer than we do to everyday people, mostly because obviously our society knows it has a symbiotic relationship with law enforcement. And because of that, I think people feel safer believing that officers will always do the right thing, that nobody will get up in the morning intending to commit a crime, let alone that they will always honor, we hope, the boundaries that are set by the Fourth Amendment. We know that's not always the case. The technology in those instances can aid in the idea of being able to hold accountable. Also, body cameras and dashboard cameras when it comes to police officers, it also assists them as well, not just the, not just the public and being able to know what happens, but officers and being able to justify their behavior. Because although people certainly believe they understand the parameters of the Fourth Amendment, and what constitutes a unreasonable search or seizure of one's body, some people would be very surprised to know that officers have a great deal of power and a great deal of deference that's given to them. And so there could be things that are justifying their behavior as well. And then there's a notion of how technology is able to 
be the thorn in the side of many a prosecutor because of the law and order and the CSI world that we live in and the belief that everything can be seen, that everything's recorded, that there is going to be DNA, there's going to be evidence that can be confirmed and corroborate every other aspect of evidence that's given by the prosecutor. You know, because people are so accustomed to the you know ubiquitous nature of technology, they assume that if a prosecutor does not have access to certain things, Therefore, they cannot make their burden of proof. And in reality, the availability of technology and corroborative evidence that's, that you see on television is just simply not always there. And so it can be a thorn in the side of prosecutors trying to carry their burden. So it can, it can help in a variety of ways. It can harm in a variety of ways. But we, either way, we cannot go back to a time and pretend that technology is not as impactful in our greater society as it is. And so... Really, when it comes to technology, it's not about the prosecutors or law enforcement hoping that technology will not apply to them or they'll be somehow immune from it. We have to keep pace to ensure that justice can be served and pursued in the times we live in now. So let's move into possible solutions. I mean, there clearly are major problems here in terms of systemic racism, uh, procedural unfairness, and unjust outcomes. What can we do about these problems? Are there ways our system can function better? Yes. I mean, there are a number of things, and I hesitate to convey that this is somehow an exhaustive list, but a few points that I think are really important. And and number one begins with the headlines. I point to the headlines because I think people are under the impression that justice reform can be so narrowly construed to focus on the issues that are in the headlines, namely police encounters. That is very important to focus on police encounters, whether it be discussions about the Fourth Amendment, discussions about the powers of the union, discussions about body cameras and and databases. Those are all very important. But also there are a number of things that the judiciary can be assisting with to reform. And that's, number one, this judicially created doctrine of qualified immunity, which sets the bar unbelievably high to the point of being nearly insurmountable to require there to be such precision in the analogy of cases that a police officer must know to be on notice, so to speak, that what they've done is unlawful, it makes it nearly impossible for people to be able to civilly pursue a police officer for what they're doing wrong. Unions aid in that as well, but there's a, it's a judicially created doctrine that can be revisited and should be revisited. And I think there's being considered as even possibly being eliminated. Now, whether the elimination is possible, that'll be a topic for Congress, perhaps. But the idea also of the Supreme Court and its case law that gives a benefit of the doubt to police officers in a way that I think, again, can be insurmountable. And that is by requiring officers be judged through a reasonable officer standard as opposed to a reasonable person standard, it's very difficult for officers to either be held accountable for prosecutors to pursue even through a grand jury. And when that happens, when you don't have accountability, when you feel like you might be untouchable, for those officers who might already be inclined to be unethical, then it can be completely emboldening in their approach. It's also about this bail reform that needs to take place. We should not be having to pay for the presumption of innocence. We should not have people's bail be tied to 
padding the pockets of jurisdictions to fill potholes as opposed to what it should be tied to, which is, I guess, a security threat or security risk and whether that person is going to return on their own personal recognizance. And of course, also you mentioned technology. There are ways in which the technology and the available weapons that have been given down, even I think during the Obama administration, military grade weapons and the like that have been provided to police officers that contribute to a feeling of a police, almost military state that further exacerbates issues of distrust between these communities. And of course, there's so many other aspects that could go into this as well. And of course, reallocating resources in a way that police officers need not be considered the panacea or jack of all trades. There are so many different aspects. All of this really comes down to realizing that it's an ecosystem and by focusing on but one aspect, you will only be confined to being able to, to change one aspect. And there is a lot of comprehensive reform to take place. I mean, those are all great ideas. Are there things that prosecutors should be doing differently in terms of rules of evidence? Judges often don't have a lot of discretion in their sentencing patterns. Do we need to make changes there? Any thoughts on those topics? I think the sentencing guidelines, it, it would be very prudent, so we say to revisit, especially for nonviolent offenses or to figure out if there is, if the range that has been set remains appropriate or allowing judges to have greater discretion for even downward departures. Upward departures might provide a greater instance for an abuse of power, but downward departures, I think, are certainly things that, that judges want to have more of. In terms of prosecutors, and one thing I do in this book, I suffer no fools in my own commentary, and I don't try to self-aggrandize. I don't try to excuse myself from the criticism. There are moments that it's justifiable to critique and criticize and wonder about the choices I have made. And I think that comes down to what people don't realize is the amount of discretion and autonomy that individual prosecutors actually have. You know, it's not as if everything you are prosecuting or every trial you have is run up the train, the chain, excuse me, more often than not, the only time your supervisors or the U.S. attorney or the attorney general would ever be involved is if it's a high profile case and maybe about strategy for your immediate supervisor. But the most notions, the most of the time you're acting on an island unto yourself, which means that it invites your individual bias, whether it's conscious or unconscious, and your sort of baptism by fire, as you try to climb that learning curve, it makes it such that there will be collateral damage and there will be a lack of uniformity about how cases are tried, how justice is really pursued. So I think that's one area in particular we can look more to, the idea of the discretion of any, we don't want a society where anyone has unchecked, unfettered discretion. And that would be an area to look at as well. So you dedicate this book to your two children. What do you hope for them as they grow up and launch their own lives? You know, I love my babies. I know they're not babies so much anymore. They're seven and nine. But to me, they could be 51 and I'll still want to rock them on my lap. I got to tell you, I, they are my babies through and through. And I, I wrote this book in part because like many people, I work from home during the pandemic. I had been working from home. I have a home studio, in fact. And my children, when they were distance learning, would be oftentimes looking at me while I was broadcasting. And they would ask questions like, mommy, I heard you say that George Floyd called for his mother. Would you come if I was calling for you like that? And moments like that reminded me of how, one, my children were seeing an, an inevitability 
of their experience, even at that young age. And what was resonating with them were things that I could not have imagined would resonate with them. And I wanted them to really understand as much as I was having the the talk and the commentary with the world about issues like that, I was still having a conversation with my children about what justice really was and who I was within that system. And I hope that one day with books like this and conversations like we're having and, and moments where people are able to not just speak truth to power, but they'd first know what the truth is, I hope for my children and so many others that what we've been experiencing from my parents' lifetime to my grandparents even now, that they will learn about it in a history book and they will shake their heads about how America used to be, that the world they will live in will be perhaps finally the America that was envisioned on paper. And that's what I hope. Well, that is a great hope, and I hope they are able to reach that point. Now, this is a fascinating book that I recommend highly. It is called Just Pursuit, A Black Prosecutor's Fight for Fairness. It is a great read, and it provides a sobering perspective on the American legal system. I want to thank Laura Coates for sharing her thoughts with us today. At Brookings, we write regularly about legal issues and digital technology. You can find more information on our Brookings Tech Tank blog located at brookings.edu. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast. And sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.